This evening we are going to continue with kind of our survey of some basic Methodist stuff. We've started off with some history. Um, the history is, is fascinating uh, because, you know, not, not the least of which the reasons are that John and Charles Wesley were just extraordinary men in their time. They were extraordinary churchmen, they were brilliant, they were thoughtful. Um, tonight we're going to look uh, a little bit more about Methodist thought. So there are a lot of working definitions of grace that we might have, and so my own working definition of grace is this. Grace is God's merciful orientation toward humanity and God's saving activity on behalf of humankind. There are two things there. Number one is the way God relates to us. Does God relate to us as a police officer waiting on us to transgress? As a traffic violations uh, officer just looking for tickets to write? Or does God have a, a more positive orientation toward us? I would maintain that grace is a merciful orientation toward humanity. And also the action, the verb. God enters into human history to save, to love, to support humankind. So God's saving activity on behalf of humankind. That is my working definition of grace. Okay? But in order to get to this working definition of grace, and these things keep coming up over and over again, I'm going to hopefully get them away. Um, grace and Methodist thought, I, I want us to approach this by thinking about three different questions that were on the Wesley's minds. What is salvation? Who are the saved? And do the saved know that they're saved? So uh, the beginning here, um, what is salvation? I remember, you know, all, all the folks in South Carolina as I was growing up, you, you, you'd get nine a year. Uh, these folks that would come up and put their arms around you, friend, are you saved? Well, what that meant might be a little different depending on who it was that was asking the question. And this is not to say that uh, the Catholic understanding of salvation or the Protestant understanding of salvation is simplistic. Neither of those is. Uh, but it is to say that there are some various facets of salvation uh, that different groups often talk about. Uh, I visited recently the Southern Baptist Convention's website and after walking through how to become a Christian, here is the statement that the Southern Baptist um, how to become a Christian ends with. God says that if you believe in his son, Jesus, you can live forever with him in glory. So that tells us something. How to become a Christian, now what? The now what is, if you believe in his son, Jesus, you can live forever with him in glory. And um, yeah, that's certainly something that, that I believe. That's certainly something that is a, a big deal uh, when we're talking about faith. Um, but there are other ways that we, can, that we can talk about what salvation is. What I think is one of the most, they're, they're, my favorite sentence in the English language comes from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer evening service. May the Lord Almighty grant us a peaceful night and a perfect end. 
I think there is no other sentence I've ever heard in the English language that is as beautiful as that. But number two, number two is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. When they think about what is salvation, what is the chief end, okay, the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession, question and answer. Question, what is the chief end of man? And if you are a good catechumen, if you're a, a, a good student of the Westminster Confession, your answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, I am not a Presbyterian. I am not a follower of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is a brilliant document. It is absolutely one of the foundational documents uh, in, in Western civilization. But there is no answer more beautiful to, to me than, than that answer. What is the chief end of man? To, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I mean, this, this is a beautiful view of salvation. That in life, what are we to do? We are to bring honor and glory to God. What is our end? Well, our end is that we will enjoy God forever. Now, I'm going to naturally, as a, uh, as a Methodist, I'm going to go a little more in depth into the, the Wesleyan idea. Uh, the Wesleyan idea understands salvation as a lifelong work of God in a person. And um, Sean, some of this group may not know this distinguished writer that I am quoting here. Uh, tell us a bit about this distinguished writer. Well, uh, and some people in here know this distinguished writer uh, personally. Uh, his name is Richard Heisenreiter. He was a, uh, he is one of the most distinguished living Wesley scholars of our time. And he taught at SMU for several years, then went to Duke and is retired, lives in North Carolina. But what, how some of you know him is once upon a time he was a member of this congregation. I think was chair of our administrative council here in the 1970s. His first job was as a professor at Center College after his PhD. And he's a Methodist and he belonged to this church. So we have a personal connection uh, with him. And in fact, he still has friends in Danville. And so, uh, but he's a, he's, a, uh, he's a giant. His most notable one, I think he's got the best biography of Wesley that's out there. And two is Wesley wrote journals, both John and Charles, in, in code. Part of that was they were kind of despised. And, and he is the first person to decipher the Wesley's code. And so he has translated these journals, mostly finding they're about mundane things. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, he is famous for breaking the Wesley code. Uh, and, and I think Mort, Mort remembers him. And, yeah. and uh, Several, maybe a couple other you. That's what took him away from Danville, wasn't it? I Just to go to SMU. You went to SMU. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to quote him again and again and again, but he is not someone that is on the other side of the world. He's somebody that used to be a part of this congregation uh, that, that we're in. And, and if you are interested in an academic view of the Wesleyan movement, um, this, this book that I'm going to quote again and again tonight, uh, Wesleyan, the people call Methodists, it's in its second edition. I think it's 2013. Yeah, 2013. Um, that's that's a good academic book. It's it's pretty accessible and um, a lot of great stories about the Wesleys and uh, the Methodist movement in general. But anyway, what I want to point out is that that this idea of salvation is a lifelong work of God in a person. So. Wesley set forth the basic spiritual themes and doctrinal emphases that were emerging in his own life. As he was thinking, 
he was also living. He was living this idea that he was a sinner in need of grace. He was living this idea that he wanted to know that he was saved. He was living this idea that he wanted assurance of salvation but didn't have it. He was living this idea that, all right, suddenly he did come to assurance of salvation. And so this focus on the way of salvation that mirrors his spiritual pilgrimage Prevenient grace, conviction of sin, repentance, justification, assurance, regeneration, sanctification, Christian perfection, and final salvation. Um, this is, this is what, what Wesley's theology emphasizes. And so, um, in, in the words of, of Heizenrader, uh, salvation is not going to heaven or eternal blessedness alone, but it's the whole work of God in the individual from the first dawning of grace in the soul until consummation and glory. My first church memory, my first church memory was of my great aunt Grace teaching me to sing deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Uh, in Wesley's theology, I was being saved in my aunt Grace's preschool classroom because it was, it was a part of this lifelong work of God in the heart. And so for Methodists, for Wesleyans, uh, salvation has moments that, that you can identify, and yet you can also say it's in the past, it's in the present, it's in the future. I have been saved. It's fine to say that. I am being saved. I, God is still working in my heart. I will be saved. There will be a time um, when the aches in your knees uh, <laughs> when you're you know, not being able to recall things as quickly as you used to, there, there, there's a time for the renewal of all creation. And so the past, the present, the future, um, I have been saved, I am being saved, I, I will be saved, all of that, all of that comes to the idea of, of salvation in the Wesleyan uh, way. So, so just this question of, of what is salvation, are, are you saved? It depends on the perspective that you're looking at this through what people mean. And in the Methodist tradition, um, we tend to mean the work that God is doing in your life. Now, we expect this to bear fruit. Uh, we expect a transformation. We expect faith, hope, and love to be shown in abundance. Uh, but we'll talk more specifically about some of the ways that that happens. So, so what is salvation? Different people bring different expectations to that based on the tradition. Um, the question as to who are the saved is, is an intriguing one uh, because we don't really necessarily have the background that the Wesleys in the 1700s had when Calvin and his teachings and Arminius and his teachings were, were being uh, fought out and how they worked together and essentially there are a couple of, couple of different um, thoughts as to who are the saved. Those of you who are familiar with Calvinism uh, know that, that in Calvinistic thought the saved are known as the elect and they are named identifiable individuals. Now the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, and, and let me just preface this by saying, 
again, this is one of the foundational documents in, in Western civilization. It is an amazing document, and some of the greatest preachers in the world have believed in Reformed theology and, and have been staunch Calvinists. But being a staunch Calvinist um, carries with it uh, some interesting implications. Okay, so this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's very small, so listen carefully. <laughs> so the Confession of Faith says, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So what does that mean about who's saved and who's not saved? Center column there. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined to everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. These angels and men, thus predestined and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed. And their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, has chosen in Christ to everlasting glory, out of his mere <laughs> grace and love, dot, dot, dot. Well, what about the others? Yeah. Glad you asked. <laughs> the rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. All right, so this is, this is hardcore Calvinism. There are some people that are predestined to life. There are others that are predestined to damnation. And there is nothing, nothing that you can do to change that. That's hardcore Calvinism. Now, John Wesley says, whoa, wait a minute. Now, when you think about the implications of this, if you've taught vacation Bible school in the last 25 years, probably on day one or day two, you learn God loves everybody, unless you're a staunch Calvinist. <laughs> if you're a staunch Calvinist, God loves the elect. And if you are not among the elect, then, then you are, in fact, destined, uh, <clears throat> destined to eternal perdition. Wesley says, um, yeah, let's think about that a little different way. There is, in fact, this language of the elect within the Bible that any serious student of the Bible has to, has to deal with. But whereas Calvin deals with the elect as named identified individuals, Wesley says, a God who would treat humanity like that would be a tyrant. And he actually used the word 
tyrant. So, so these were not always nice arguments between Wesley and the Calvinist. Um, one, of, one of the early Methodists, whose name I always, in, I always either mispronounce or misspell, but George Whitfield, who is spelled with an E. Is that right? Yes, George, I want to call him Whitefield, but it's Whitfield, um, uh, was a staunch Calvinist. And he and Wesley were, were in cahoots and out of cahoots and working together and not working together throughout much of the, the, the mid to late 1700s. Um, but Wesley falls under this idea of the elect, oh my goodness, the elect not as specific individuals who are named and who are chosen, but Wesley says, no, there are those who are elect and there are those who are not. The elect are those who respond in faith to God's activity. And so when in the Bible we, we hear about the elect, we're, we're not hearing um, Sean, but not Russ. We are, we are hearing those who believe versus those whose hearts have been, have been hardened by unbelief. And so uh, Arminius was the debater with Calvin and, and basically everything that Calvin said that... Uh, that you probably wondered about. Arminius is, is sort of working out in a different way that is way too small in that font to see. So what is salvation? Depends on your perspective. Who are the saved? Well, the saved are the elect, but depending on whether you follow Calvin or not, um, Calvin says the elect, you, you, you better hope. Um, Wesley says, no, you can be the elect because God's invitation has gone out to everybody. And so the question then becomes, do the saved know that they're saved? We have all of these accounts uh, under the, the top there, no, but hope for the best. Uh, there, there are people who throughout their lives were, were tortured by this idea. Not, I'm not sure. I'm one of, one of the elect. And if all you've if all you've heard is, is high Calvinism preached, um, there there is this there is this fear for for many that uh, you can't really know until you die whether you are among the elect or not. Um, there is a there is a second category here. Do the saved know they're saved? Well, maybe they do. I mean, I know a lot of people who are so secure in their faith that. Um, that, that they don't have the kinds of doubts that, uh, that other people have, but the, the same thing is, can be said about their own lives. Um, they don't have the same doubts that other people have, but, but they probably don't have the same doubts that they themselves once had because they have, they have grown in faith. Um, and then there's the, the third, which uh, Sean talked a little about the Moravians. Uh, the Moravians were big believers in this, this third category if you don't know you're saved, then you aren't saved. Um, the intriguing thing is that John Wesley changed his mind on this. Uh, John Wesley, after his evangelical experience, uh, <clears throat> came to agree with the Moravians that, that he, he wasn't certain before, he had certainty afterwards, and therefore, just like you know, we all, uh, we all, find things that work for us. 
and then we tell everybody that they ought to use the same vacuum cleaner or uh, that they ought to take the same vitamins or go to the same vacation spot or have the same spiritual experiences that we have. And so, so, so Wesley, that was such a profound experience for him. Um, by the time he was printing the fifth edition of his extract in 1775, uh, he prints the text just as he had right after his conversion experience. And then he, he adds some errata, some notes. And so in 1740, he says, I went to America to convert others, but was never converted to God. 1775, he's like, oh, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe I was more of a Christian than I gave myself credit for. Um, I lack faith in Christ. In 1775, he says, well, looking back, I actually did have some faith, even though it was the faith of a servant and not the faith of a son. Um, he had described himself by saying, I am a child of wrath. In 1775, he said, nope. Uh, I wasn't, even though for the moment I thought I was. I was persuaded that I was even then in a state of salvation. 1775, he says, yeah, I still agree with that now. Um, and I believe that all this time I had been building on the sand. He was much gentler to himself toward the end of his life when he says, not so. There were some things that I had gotten right. I was moving in the right direction. God was working in my soul. I was right as far as I went. Now, Wesley didn't often acknowledge that he changed his mind. Um, he, he, was often, he was often described as, as saying that he had preached exactly the same doctrine from the time of, of uh, the, the early 1730s on. But he wrote so much and he preached so much that by, by the last couple of decades of his life, people were using the words of Wesley to argue against the words of Wesley. And he, he, his general response was, no, you misunderstood. Let's, let's focus in a little more. But it's his, his perspective on life had actually changed um, somewhat. And so if we want to get the, the full extent of the Wesleyan understanding of salvation, um, then we need to look at sort of where John Wesley landed. John Wesley landed this idea that the Christian life is a whole life of grace. And so there are many ways that God's grace intersects with our lives as individuals. And um, you may be familiar with provenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace. Those are the big three that are often talked about in Methodist studies and in books about Wesleyan theology. I think that in order to get a fuller understanding, uh, we need to see all of these, all of these expressions of grace. Now, it's not, we're not saying that there are six different kinds of grace or there are three different kinds of grace. We're saying that we as human beings experience God's grace in a variety of ways. The first is provenient grace, which is um, the grace that comes before any sermon is understood, before any scripture has been read, before any prayer has been prayed. 
Um, it's why we baptize infants in the Methodist tradition, is because we believe that, that God's promise extends even to this child, and God will be at work in this child, even before my great aunt taught me to sing deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. God's grace was at work in a deep way and in a wide way. Um, so provenient grace is God's grace at work whether you know it or not. God's grace at work in the world in ways that we find surprising. You know, even, even the, uh, the most hard-hearted and hateful of characters can surprise you sometime by doing something kind or amazing. And that's an example of, of provenient grace. God's grace is just, it's just out there. It is in the world. It is all over. Uh, there's convicting grace. And uh, convicting grace is the kind of grace that says, all right, you need to take a look at yourself. You need to understand the ways that you have strayed from God, the path of God. Um, you need to comprehend the, the ways that God intends for us to live and how our lives are, are, are departing from that. And, and God's grace uh, convicts us of sin. In an evangelical sense, uh, I remember being at a revival service in, in my country church down in South Carolina, which was a wonderful church that taught me many, many things. My great aunt was the Sunday school teacher of the preschool class. And uh, we had these great revival preachers that would come in and, and they would speak to the heart. And the convicting grace of God would often, would often manifest itself. And um, I didn't want to go down to the altar every night, but there were, there were some times when I just knew that I needed to pray for something, and, and God's grace was speaking to me there. Um, the grace of repentance. The idea that we don't just acknowledge we're sinners, but we turn around. We don't just, uh, we don't just recognize our brokenness, but we commit uh, to a life that that is, is more whole uh, according to the will of God and, and the way of God. So, so prevenient grace through convicting and, and repentance to justifying grace. Justifying grace is, is the grace of pardon. It doesn't mean that God has a view of you or me that is unrealistic. It doesn't mean that God sees us as perfect when we're not. It means that God looks at us exactly as we are, and he says, you are pardoned. Now, the, the, great, the great example of pardon is, uh, is Richard Nixon, pardoned by Gerald Ford. It didn't mean that Nixon was innocent. In fact, it was pretty clear that Nixon wasn't innocent. What it did mean was that even though guilty, he would not pay a penalty for what he had done. Justifying grace is the grace of pardon. I am a guilty person. But by the justifying grace of God, God has said to me, your sins are forgiven. And the penalty that you otherwise might, might have is, is not to be applied. Um, the grace of assurance... Um, This was something that was perennially in the background of the Wesleys. Once they were talking to the Moravians, 
And the Moravians said, man, you got to have this assurance. And if you don't have this assurance, you are not a Christian. Some of them actually said that. And then they started worrying about, well, I don't have this sense of assurance. And then their father was dying, and uh, they wanted to make sure he had a sense of assurance before he died, even though he was a priest in the Church of England, and even though they were priests in the Church of England. Um, the assurance, the calm, quiet uh, assurance of faith that I belong to God. Um, and, and the classic Wesley line with, with, with assurance is, is Aldersgate. Um, and some people have these amazing Aldersgate kinds of experiences, and they can point to a time when something like this happened. Uh, I mean, I can point to a time when something like this happened in, in my own life. It was uh, January 9th, 1989, so I've just been through my 31st birthday of a, of a kind of Aldersgate e event. Um, in the evening, I went very unwillingly, he says, to the Society at Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. I can hardly think of a less interesting Bible study. <laughs> About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That's Wesley's journal entry describing Aldersgate. Um, I find that, that there are a whole lot of people that have had experiences uh, where, they, where they do trust in God and they do find this assurance. I also find there are a lot of people who are still looking for this kind of assurance. I have a, an aged family member uh, that that has been looking for this kind of assurance for a very long time now. Um, and the older one gets and the farther one, one goes without finding assurance, if you're seeking it with all your heart, uh, the more troublesome it becomes. Wesley, right after this Aldersgate experience, just like anybody else, said, you've got to have one. Um, near the end of his life, he recognized that, that while most people uh, have at least the possibility um, of, of having an experience like this, and this is ideal in the Christian life, he no longer wrote off those who didn't have that kind of experience. And I will tell you, whether you've had an Aldersgate experience or not, if you want one, like if you, if you, are, if you are looking for the assurance that God is with you, then that's grace in itself. Geographically, where is Aldersgate? Aldersgate's in the city of London. And when I say the city, some of you have been there, you've been to London, you know that the old city is the city, and it's very small. Very few people actually live there. And so Aldersgate Street would, if I recall correctly, it's about three-tenths of a mile from St. Paul's Cathedral in London, right in the middle of the city. Maybe more. I can't remember. I'm jealous because Sean has been there and I haven't. <laughs> but at least tonight I can say that I've been to Israel and Sean hasn't. <laughs> but <laughs> that's going to be changing here really soon. Um, so this is the Aldersgate experience, which is the, the grace of assurance. And, and Wesley wants everybody to have this kind of assurance. Um, as a pastor, I can, I can testify that there are people 
who have this kind of experience. Uh, I've had this kind of experience, but I looked for it for a while before I before I had it. Uh, and and I know many many dear people who are people of faith, um, who nonetheless have all of this working in their life, uh, who who don't necessarily have that that experience. But if you're looking for it, God's at work in your life. Um, and we tell us a little more about the kind of you know that experience. It, I mean, it may be a moment, but I mean, I think you can know. Hmm? Like when when you pray, do you do you feel that God's listening? I mean, I don't know if Wesley would put it in those phrases, but I, I think he absolutely would. But I, I yeah. think the, the idea that you know when. Uh, <laughs> Do you know yourself to be a child of God? That would be a question. Do, do you do you feel that you have been adopted? Uh, do you fear death? That was another question. Do you fear death? Uh, or do you believe that, do you have it in your heart that whenever you think about death, you believe the next step will be to go be with God? That's a sign of assurance. You know, sometimes I think we think insurance has to come in a revival meeting or, uh, you know, we can remember the date and the time. But there's also a sense that when it comes to assurance, if you know now, there must have been a moment when it started. Whether you can identify that moment or not. Yeah, so I don't, yes. I don't know if, I, yeah, as I said, it, you know, I think it's going to be hard to be saved if you don't. I think, I think part of the Wesleyan genius is to say that, you know, all can be saved. Uh, all must be saved, uh, and all can know that they're saved. You don't have to, yeah. Why would somebody walk into a Calvinist church with the defeatist, fatalistic knowledge, knowledge, as their doctrine would say, that, hmm, I doubt seriously that I'm one of the select. Why would they go? <laughs> Why'd they hang around a while? It's... <clears throat> That is a question that Wesleyan philosophers love to ask. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've never known a Calvinist who didn't think they were one of the elect. So, <laughs> and there, there's narcissism. <laughs> and and they're they're also, and and I don't want to paint the, the, the Calvinists in a in a negative light. To, They've done that themselves. <laughs> the, the the Westminster Confession, the hyper Calvinism. I think is is somewhat problematic because because I believe that that uh, I believe that God calls out to all creation and that God intends to restore all creation and that we can respond to that call we can respond to that call recognizing it in the past where we didn't see it turning from sin repenting receiving the grace of God this this grace of assurance, um, seeking that and then sanctifying grace, the, the last, uh, can be compared to, like, if, if justifying grace is birth, sanctifying grace is growth. Um, God intends for us to grow in holiness. God intends for us to grow in, in wholeness. God intends for us not to be the same person two years from now that we are now. Um, and sometimes we want to be a little hard on ourselves I wish there were some things I knew 15 years ago that I know now but as somebody who has only who, who had not been a 
been a Christian for 15 years longer. Um, you got to give yourself sometimes a little, a little slack. Uh, you got to accept this grace. You got to recognize that that God is calling you to grow, and this holy dissatisfaction that you may have now may be that God is calling you to to step out in faith and uh, and embrace this sanctification, this this being made exactly who God wants you to be. I, I think your knowledge, you can you know that you're you're saved, but your feelings ebb and flow. That's where we get in trouble with feelings, and, and we sh we should have absolute knowledge uh, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that and that we're, we're saved, and try not to let the feelings uh, of, of doubt come come in. But we have bad days, and there are sometimes when our hearts there's that that great scripture when our hearts condemn us. God is greater than our hearts. Yeah. So if we can experience the grace of assurance, we can lose it. Correct? Uh, yes. If we can experience the grace of assurance. And, and Wesley thought he did at various points in his journal. Uh, Wesley would say, I no, longer, I no longer feel the presence of God. Um, for, for Calvinists, and, and I, I didn't include this this evening, uh, you, you often hear about the, the famous tulip. And I don't have this, but the, the, the tulip. Number one, Calvinists believe in five things. The total depravity of humanity. That there is nothing good in humanity. And, and uh, Wesleyan scholars would say, Wesleyans also believe in the, the total depravity of humanity but not the teetotal depravity of humanity, <laughs> that, that by God's grace, there's still something left. Um, where's I going? Un, un, you is <laughs> yes. unconditional election. Unconditional election, which we talked about. Limited atonement. Jesus didn't die for the sins of the whole world. Mm. He died for the sins of the elect mm. in, in hyper-Calvinism. Mm. Uh, irresistible grace. If you're one of the elect, you, you're going you're gonna to be pulled out. You can't resist it. Uh, and then the perseverance of the saints, which is, you know, you, you are one of the elect and nothing can change that. Um, it's fair to say that when it comes to salvation, Reformed and, and Calvinist and hyper-Calvinist theologians see the primary image of God as, as king, as sovereign over all creation, who, who issues decrees that are followed no matter what, who is in control always and everywhere. The flip side of that is that Wesley tends to pick up on the image of God as father. And so it's... it's it's a much more relational kind of, of a, it's, it's a much more relational image. And in that relationship, we know that, that you know, there are relationships that we have that are close, that are more distant, that, are, that we can say yes to, we can say no to. And so um, Methodists are not uh, believers in perseverance of the saints in that 
we believe that, that salvation is about a relationship. And just as a relationship of marriage can turn into a relationship of divorce, um, a relationship with God, um, can, can a person can turn their back on that. So ultimately, uh, it is something that, that could be gained and something that, that could be lost. Now personally, um, I think I've known people that have turned their backs but out of thousands of people that I've known, I think I can name on one hand the number of people that I would consider that have, have actually said absolutely no, I am, I am no longer following. And, and yeah, and whether you are, con whether you are, whether you are saved, whether you are under God's grace is is not entirely. I don't want to put your feelings in the driver's seat of that. That would be my concern there. It's like, well, I don't feel it. I must not be saved today, but maybe I'll feel saved tomorrow. Um, your feeling of salvation is different from the experience of salvation. Yeah, it, it, it's, yeah. Uh, the, the feelings are an outgrowth of salvation. The feelings don't lead to it. The feelings are an effect, not a cause. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to say that, and, and that do Christian people feel totally, can Christian people feel totally depressed? Yes. Can Christian people feel like God is a million miles away? Yes. I suspect everyone in you, everyone in here has had that feeling at one point in their life. But uh, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater still. That, that's a, that's a, uh, you know, do you, do you trust in God? And, you know, is, does God respond to those who trust in him? And sometimes I think what we consider to be trust in God is is way, way more harsh than what the Bible considers to be trust in God. If you look, for example, at the fact that Job is not condemned, um, and and yet the whole book of Job is, where, where are you? Where are you? If only I could get an audience with you. If only I could find... My creator, I know that my creator lives, but where is he? Uh, turn your face from me because I don't even want to be remembered by you if this is all you can do. And, and even Jesus, uh, that, that we proclaim as, as, as sinless, uh, one of his seven last words on, on the cross, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a, that's a human, non-sinful response to deep pain and agony. What's the theological thought of Job's wife's fate? <laughs> we are we are she not really told. To, sell out. <laughs> God to, die. to back up a little bit, so where do the Calvinists fall in the whole concept of free will? So you predestined to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the left side here, if you were a philosopher, you can say, can all of these things be true at once? I would say all of these things cannot be true at once. But people smarter than I have believed all of these things at once. Um, God did from eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. But, he's not the author of sin. 
nor does he offer violence to the will of the creatures. So we actually have free will. To be bad. The will is bound. Reformed theologians will say it is bound. It's bound by the will of God. That, and that, that by, by the descent into sin, by the original sin, uh, when Scripture says in, in just before the Noah story that the hearts of mankind was evil and that continuously. That every thought was evil, uh, and that every and that by that that every thought's turned inward to yourself. Everything's all about me. And they said that's the state of, that's the state, and so if it's all about me, Calvinists would say, well, if, if your will is all about you, you're never going to turn to God on your own account. You're going to need God to come and turn you to Him yourself. <coughs> and Wesley agreed with and Wesley with that agreed last part. with that. Yeah. That's why provenient grace, one of the marks of provenient mm -hmm. grace is that your will is, there is some measure of freedom given to your will. God gives every human being, according to Wesleyan theology, yeah. God gives every human being the choice, like the, the legitimate choice to say yes or no. Right. And that's grace itself. The ability to do a good thing is grace. So, we don't believe necessarily in free will. I say we believe in the freed will. That we believe that by nature our will is bound, but that by Jesus, by the grace of Jesus, that the, that the will of humankind has been freed so that we can, in fact, reach out to him. That's complicated, but does that, do you understand? Yes. Okay. To both. It's complicated, <laughs> yes, I get it. Yeah, I so I take it that the um, Wesleyans do not believe necessarily that once saved always saved they believe that you can be saved but then you can choose to give it up is that what i was kind of understanding you saying a minute ago in the same way that one can neglect or nourish a relationship okay. yeah it's all about relationship it's about relationship with god now if i have an authentic relationship with god that is life-giving that is life-changing that becomes the foundation of who i am am i likely to, to say that, that that's not important to me anymore? Um, maybe not. But it, it's also the case that, that many, many things can happen in the lives of people that, that change not only their, their outlook and their experiences, uh, but even the chemistry of the, of the brain or, or uh, any number of, of other obstacles or things that people can be faced with. Pastor Chris, you said that people will turn away from God, turn their back on God. But does he, he doesn't turn his back on us, right? I mean, the, the door is always open. The invitation to relationship is a continual <coughs> invitation. <coughs> so if we have that foundation, and somewhere within our lives, during our life, we turn our back. We still have that foundation. So we still have the... God is still with us, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what you were asking. Well, too. he's still with you, I guess, but you know, uh, we, we don't still, remind... Are we still if, saved? if you give up on him, then you're, you're no longer saved. The question is, are you yeah. with him? It's not, he's there. <laughs> he's there, but you're not anymore there, so... But most, most people who come to me and say, Pastor, I'm afraid I've lost my salvation. If you have that fear, 
then you have not. <laughs> it's you, you would not even be worried about it yeah. if if because you go all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, where you have no care, and we've all known people that you know they they were once they were once devoted and they've dropped everything, and then over time they just stop believing. Right. And it usually it sometimes happens overnight, but usually it's a slow thing. I have a friend that's in that category, and I happened to be, have been with her last night, um, and I had to take her home from something, and she started telling me all of this. She's going blind, she's yeah. been, and has other health problems, and she's prayed and prayed, and she just says, I, I've just been praying for some, two years, and, and I, I'm just getting worse, and God's not answering my prayers, and I'm sorry to say I'm, I'm afraid I'm losing my faith, and, and I've didn't mm -hmm. really know what to say to her. Mm -hmm. I honestly didn't know what to, I was, I said, you know, I wish I could give you a good answer on that, except that keep on praying. <laughs> well, and, and the time, the time for us to be thinking about these things are, is now. Uh -huh. um, do I, as a Christian, do I, as a pastor, do I, as a father, a husband, a friend, do I have any reason to expect that I won't have heart disease? Mm -hmm. Uh, God, God has never has has never said that that people who invest their lives in others, people who are, are a part of a family, uh, won't get cancer, won't have strokes, uh, won't won't have heart disease, won't have arthritis for crying out loud. You know, I mean, um, what what exactly? Uh, and this is this is the time when we're sitting here when we're when we're considering what it means to be a person of faith and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that, that, that our prayer is magic. Uh, it doesn't mean that if we just say the right words in the right way, we'll get everything that we want. It means that God's with us. God's with us in the hospital room. He's with us uh, in the nursing home. He's, he's with us as we, as we travel. He's, God is with us. And that's, you know, that's a primary the, the primary understanding of Emmanuel, God, God is with us. And, uh, and we'll... Our bodies are only temporary, and that's not the part of us that God is is wanting. Our bodies are temporary. Our pain and suffering is temporary. We all go through things for different reasons, and God has reasons for all those things. But that's not the part of us that's saved. Although we do have we do have the promise that what does Paul say? The perishable shall put on imperishability, and the mortal shall put on immortality. Yeah. And then the saying will be fulfilled that the bo the body itself will be will be redeemed in a powerful powerful way. Yeah, well, I, yeah I, I think we uh, we do have the you know the, the decay. I told you the decay of our bodies is a result of the fall, and salvation comes to redeem the fall. But even in the midst of that, there is still the, the residue of that. I mean, like cancer is, uh, I think of cancer, and many of us know people who are affected by cancer, people in this room who are affected by cancer. And, 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 and cancer is when your cell division goes wild. If your cells stopped dividing, you know what would happen to you? You would die right now. That would be it. So your cells dividing and multiplying is a good thing. But when your cells overdo it, when a process God creates is turned, mutates into something bad, I mean, that's kind of the definition of sin right there. 
and, and, and that's not saying that you know you get cancer because you sin, but people get cancer because we live in a fallen world. And that's why God promises to restore all creation. That's why there will be no more cancer in heaven because God doesn't intend people to have cancer. It, and, and, and that's what this is about is that you know, grace restores everything, but we still live within a fallen world. It's kind of a form of the prosperity gospel, to be honest. Are you all familiar with the prosperity gospel? We laugh at like Creflo Dollar and his seventy million dollar jet that God told him he's going to get, and you know all these other these other figures, Kenneth Copeland and Gloria Copeland and you know that crew, and and we laugh at that who promise you know wealth if only you'll send me a thousand dollar faith seat. But some of us who are Christians, I think we believe somewhat believe in prosperity gospel of faith. We say, well, you know, I believe, so God better take care of me. And that's, that's not exactly how grace works. <laughs> and we're, we're called to this life of grace, though, that, that can, you know, when, when you get the slip that says you don't have a job here anymore, um, when, when something happens uh, in, in your family that you didn't predict, when something happens in your own body that you didn't predict, um, that, that God, is, God is with us no matter what. God's present is for us. God is working on our behalf um, in in more than just the I feel good way. Like in the eternal, you're going to be a resident of the new Jerusalem, uh, an inhabitant of, of the, the new heaven and, and the new earth. You're going to, uh, Jesus' resurrection is described as the first fruits. Like that's what's going to happen to all of us. Um, and we wait with God with us. Uh, we wait in the midst of this whole life of grace. And uh, all these things don't necessarily happen in a moment. But like Sean said, especially with the grace of assurance. Like if you, if you have this conviction that you're a child of God, it started somewhere. Um, if you have this idea today that you might be a child of God, that maybe you want to be part of God's family, and you didn't have that two years ago, that's grace. Um, you're in this room, in a church that dates back to 1788. People have been worshiping in this congregation for 200, I can't do math this late at night, uh, plus years. You're, you're in this place and not somewhere else because God's grace has intersected with your, with your life. So... Uh, 